When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Racism in America for decades led to strict housing segregation. Black people were restricted to particular neighborhoods of cities and towns, north and south. And then those neighborhoods got poor schools, poor public services, and abusive policing. But historians are now showing that that was not simply the result of white people refusing to live near blacks. Segregated housing was the result of a carefully organized long-term effort to establish a legal basis for systematic racial discrimination. And the group that succeeded was not the KKK or white power organizations. It was the realtors groups. For that history, we turn to Eric Foner. Of course, he taught American history at Columbia for several decades. His work on the history of Reconstruction has won the Pulitzer Prize, the Bancroft Prize, and the Lincoln Prize. He's also written for the New York Times op-ed page, the TLS, the LRB, and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board. Eric. Welcome back. Nice to be here, John. Well, you wrote about the history of housing discrimination for the L.A. Review of Books about a new book called Freedom to Discriminate by Gene Slater. It's about California, which set the standard for the legal basis of racism in housing. During the early 60s, California had a strong movement to ban racial discrimination in housing. Mike Davis and I wrote about it in our book on L.A. in the 60s. L.A. saw a lot of direct action protests, including sit-ins at new subdivisions in Southern California that didn't allow blacks. 
And the California State Legislature in 1963 passed a law banning many forms of racial discrimination in housing, the Rumford Fair Housing Act, it was called, a great achievement, uh, but it was repealed by a statewide referendum. We're told the backlash against the Fair Housing Act that led to its repeal was caused by the Watts Rebellion of 1965. Is that correct? Well, chronologically, it's not correct because the Watts Rebellion came a year after the referendum, which the referendum was 1964, the Watts Uprising 65. So the Watts Uprising didn't cause people to go out and vote against fair housing. In November 1964, uh, as everybody knows, Lyndon Johnson won a landslide victory over Barry Goldwater, including in California, which he carried by over a million votes. Yet at that same election in California, Proposition 14, which not only repealed the Rumsford Act you mentioned, but uh, banned the state from ever acting against housing discrimination, that passed by 2.1 million votes. So a lot of Democrats who voted for Lyndon Johnson must have also voted to maintain housing uh, segregation or what he calls in the title of his book, Freedom to Discriminate. Well, the referendum that repealed fair housing in California was the result of a powerful organization of California's real estate brokers. These are the licensed members of local and state real estate associations. They set the political and legal model for the entire nation, and they were careful not to argue in favor of segregation, not to argue that black people need to be restricted and controlled. What was their argument? Well, they picked up on uh, and utilized the most common word in our political vocabulary, which is freedom. This was freedom of choice, freedom to uh, choose who your neighbors were, who would live in your, uh, you know, in your community uh, so that it was white people's freedom that was being protected. And they said, we're not against blacks. Uh, You know, they can go and find a house for themselves. But it's a governmental action to force neighbors on uh, others uh, was a violation of individual freedom. Freedom of choice, the irony is this notion that people just have a right to choose whatever they want was a very common idea in the 60s on the left as well as the right. That language was in the air and uh, the realtors picked it up and used it to justify a pretty flagrant racial discrimination. So housing segregation was not simply the so-called natural outcome of homeowners' wishes to live among people like themselves. It had to be created and continually reinforced, and it faced a big problem, the Constitution of the United States and the 14th Amendment's guarantee of equal protection of the laws. Doesn't that include protection from laws that restrict where black people can buy houses? Well, there weren't actually laws which said black people can't live in this neighborhood or that neighborhood for the very reason you mentioned, the 14th Amendment enacted during Reconstruction, my favorite time period. Yes, said that all uh, people, not only citizens, are entitled to the equal protection of the laws. But unfortunately, the Supreme Court very early decided that the language is no state can deny you the equal protection of the laws. And they said, well, this means it's public officials or public actions that are banned. And in fact, early in the 20th century, when Louisville passed a residential segregation ordinance, that's state action, that's the government acting, 
uh, Supreme Court knocked that down. They said, no, you can't do that. So the Supreme Court did say that cities cannot restrict blacks to particular neighborhoods, that it's unconstitutional for cities to do that. Nevertheless, American cities ended up being over segregated overwhelmingly in the, in the next decades. How did the realtors get away with it? Well, the most important mechanism in California and in many other places was what they called racial covenants. In other words, in deeds, in mortgages, property documents would say, and almost all housing built in California had this for many decades, that the property could only be sold to members of the Caucasian race. There is no such thing as the Caucasian race. Nonetheless, these were not state actions. These were private agreements, contracts reached between realtors, between people buying a house, selling a house. Uh, and the Supreme Court for a long, long time said, well, that's not state action. That's individual choice. And the 14th Amendment doesn't uh, apply to that. This was one of the worst long periods of jurisprudence in the Supreme Court's history, the state action doctrine, which is still out there today and still being used when the Supreme Court overturned the Violence Against Women Act. This is about 20 years ago, uh, making it a federal crime, uh, abusive of you know, violence against women. The Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that because individual, you know, it's bad for people to murder women. We don't like that. But <laughs> There's not much we can do about it because it's not a state. It's not the government coming after you to commit acts of violence. So uh, the Congress can't legislate against it. So, yeah, it was these private actions. And then, of course, there were many other just patterns where realtors would refuse to show houses in numerous neighborhoods to black potential buyers or they would charge much more to a potential black buyer than to a white person with the same uh, economic means. There were public policies that were inherently discriminatory, particularly at the federal level. The Federal Housing Authority refused to give mortgages to people buying in integrated neighborhoods. They just marked those out as not worthy of federal assistance. Well, wasn't that discriminatory? They said, well, no, there's nothing to do with race. It's just economics. You know, these black people are poor. They lower property values. So, uh, you know, integrated neighborhoods just aren't up to standard, economically speaking. So nothing to do with race. It's just economic reality. That lasted a long time. But surely civil rights groups after World War II went back to court to challenge these private uh, covenants that the realtors included in all house sales. Right. Well, the, the, after World War II, when racism had been, uh, you know, considerably discredited by the Nazi uses of the idea of a master race, uh, yes, the Supreme Court began to move. In 1948, they said these covenants cannot be enforced in court. In a, that would be state action, the court actually saying a black person could move here or there. So, so you could sign it. But if if, a, if I want to sell my house to a black guy and I, it has a racial covenant on the deed, there's nothing anyone can do about it after that 1948 decision. They can't go to court and say, hey, you're violating this contract. But you still had racial covenants and most people still agreed with them or abided by them. So that didn't really help very much. It was not until 1968, at the very height of the civil rights era, that the Supreme Court finally said, no, housing discrimination is unconstitutional, whether it's done by the government, by realtors, by homeowners, anybody 
racially discriminating housing. Why? It's a violation of the 13th Amendment, not the 14th, the 13th Amendment, which, of course, abolished slavery. Housing uh, discrimination is a badge of slavery, it said. It can't, it must be abolished. And indeed, they just said it's, it's got to be abolished now, whether Congress acts or not. But of course, it was not so easy to enforce that. And as soon as Nixon got in and the Supreme Court began turning to the right again, 13th Amendment jurisprudence kind of uh, faded away. The larger idea that white people should have this kind of freedom, as you said, this was not an original idea of the Realtors Associations. It's a very old idea in America. You've actually written a book about the history of this idea. Your book is called The Story of American Freedom. What is the story of American freedom in brief? <laughs> it's a long story, unfortunately, but um, the story is co conflict, contestation, different ideas of freedom. Obviously, black people had a different idea of freedom than these white realtors or most white Californians, it seems. Uh, they thought freedom meant the same access to the same opportunities, the same rights, the same ability to choose where you live as white people had. And the notion that, well, we're just defending the freedom of whites to discriminate uh, they didn't think that was a legitimate uh, use of the concept of freedom. There's another book recently published by the professor Tyler Stovall called White Freedom, which shows how from centuries back into the Enlightenment, many, many people on both sides of the Atlantic have felt that freedom is really something that only white people are entitled to and only white people are able to exercise intelligently and responsibly. So the notion that black people just don't figure in your discussions of freedom has a long history and the realtors are one little piece in a very long story of freedom. I believe it's time to write a new chapter for your book, the freedom not to get vaccinated, the freedom not to wear a mask. Well, we see that around today, obviously, and it is odd. But of course, freedom is such a uh, it's a word that can be used for all sorts of purposes, as we all know. And we have seen it used for all sorts of purposes. Uh, you know, on this housing front, President Trump, when he was running for uh, election reelection uh, in one of his promises was that he would get out of the business of, of fighting housing discrimination altogether. He said, we don't want to bother people who are living the suburban dream. Obviously, the suburban dream that he's talking about is a white's only dream. It's a dream of living in a nice suburban house, which is a good thing, but only with white people as your neighbors. And Trump kind of embraced that. That was the suburban dream. And of course, remember, his father had built a lot of housing in New York, which famously excluded blacks altogether, although until he was forced by the courts to stop that kind of discrimination. The first time that Donald Trump's name appeared in the New York Times was when he and his father were sued by the government for discriminating against blacks in the Trump housing. Yes, but of course, Trump has said, I don't have a racist bone in my body, and shouldn't we believe what Trump says? <laughs> So housing discrimination is not simply the result of the natural outcome of homeowners' desire to live among people like themselves. It had to be created. It had to be continually reinforced. And the key to creating the legal basis for this was the political organization formed by the realtors' organizations. 
Eric Foner wrote about it for the LA Review of Books, reviewing the book Freedom to Discriminate by Gene Slater. Eric, thanks for talking with us today. Nice to talk to you. Thank you, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.